Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Neil Shaw, founder of International Wellbeing Insights and Chief De-Stressing Officer of the Stress Management Society, about how employers can help workers deal with stress and build a sense of community and hope. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Neil Shaw, founder of International Wellbeing Insights and Chief De-Stressing Officer of the Stress Management Society. How's it going, Neil? Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, as we start off, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I started this organization 20 years ago, essentially off the back of a first-hand experience. Um, in, in my early 20s, I went through an experience which resulted in having a, a breakdown. And sadly, the depths of that, I got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. And I actually took action against that. Um, and when you've got to the depths of despair and you've actually attempted to check out and failed at that, there's not many places left for you to go. Mm-hmm. It was through my re- journey of recovery that I recognized that my experience was a really beautiful and powerful gift that I could use to help other people, which is why I set up originally the, the, the charitable organization, which is called the Stress Management Society, essentially with the vision to create a happier, healthier, more resilient world. And over the years, we then developed a consultancy arm, a commercial consultancy arm, which gets to work with some of the biggest brands on the planet, essentially working on people, culture, and well-being strategic plans to be able to drive positive change. And I guess it's it's very rewarding when what you do for a living isn't your job, it's your ikigai. It's very much my reason for being here on this planet. I get to travel the world, essentially leaving things better than I found it. So it's, it's easy to get out of bed every morning. However, that being said, you know, it was in 2003 we created this organization with a vision to create a happy, healthier, more resilient world. It seems like we are much further away from that goal today than we came into existence. And that's not through want of trying or lack of effort. Mm. It's just because the world is becoming much more challenging. It very much feels like, Jay, that we're living in an episode of Black Mirror. You know, walking outside your front door seems to be more fantastic than anything you can find on Netflix. And with that being the case, it's even more important that we double down on our efforts to ensure we are supporting people and increasing resilience, given the fact that actually it's one of the biggest issues affecting our society, yet the one we are least comfortable talking about. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, we'll, I guess we'll talk about it in this conversation. You know, the last couple of years have just sort of added on to, you know, the stress that people already had. Um it made it e- things even more weird. You, you literally could make it up. If I told you four <laughs> years ago what was going to come, you'd have thought I'd been smoking a, you know, on, on something funny. Because <laughs> the, the reality is that the world shut down. We had a global pandemic. In the UK, literally the day that COVID ended, all the restrictions ended, the very next day the war in Ukraine started, which you know, for many of us gave us fears that World War III was about to start. Yeah. Since then, we've had economic challenges, cost of living crisis, the energy crisis. We've got wildfires in Britain. Right, now, right. we hear about these things happening in California and Australia. Not in Britain. It rains all the time here. We've had the hottest summer on record. We've got to 41 degrees. You experience that in Dubai, not in England. It's normally cold and wet here. And yeah. you know we've got droughts and water shortages. You literally couldn't make this story up. It's very much like out of a Hollywood film. And if Hollywood's anything to go by, The next thing that's going to happen is the vaccine will turn people into zombies. That's I Am Legend Will Smith. (laughs) Then Aliens will attack another Will Smith film. And on top of that, I've been using that joke for a while. Now Will Smith seems to have lost the plot, given what happened at the Oscars recently. It's (laughs) it's at the point where you can either laugh or cry. 
But the challenges and the pressures, the demands that people are experiencing every single day just to navigate the world we find ourselves in is unprecedented. So if you think about the fact that it's not like the world was an easy place lacking in any kind of stress before this all started. Right. It sadly got to the point where if we don't take urgent action, we are going to lose more people. I don't say that lightly. In, in Western society, in weird countries, when I say weird, I'm not being mean or derogatory to any countries. It's an acronym that stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic Countries, which includes most of the countries of the people that will be listening to this podcast today. Mm -hmm. In weird countries, the main cause of death for a man under the age of 45 is what? Do you know, Jay? Uh, I don't know. It's suicide. No. It's rapidly becoming the same for a 15 to 29 year old. Um, one in four people experience mental health issues. In the US armed forces, more people take their own life than die from active combat. You're right. a soldier that puts your life on the line for a living, yet you are much more likely to die as a result of your own hand than an enemy combatant. <clears throat> Even though that is the case, we don't talk about this. Why is there not a public dialogue or a discourse on one of the biggest public health threats to our society? Give some further context to this. In October 2020, in the month of October alone, more people took their life in Japan than died from COVID the whole year. Wow. The news is dominated with stories of COVID and I encourage everyone not to believe a word that I say. I encourage you to fact check all of this information and you'll find that there's plenty of data and evidence to back up everything I'm saying here. But it's fascinating that even though it is that big of an issue, even though it's suggested by the year 2030, mental health will cost the global economy $6 trillion. We don't even talk about it. Now, $6 trillion is a big number, so big, most people have no context of how big. If I start accounting from one to six trillion right now, it will take me 190,200 years, basically the lifespan of humanity. It's that big a number that it will take the entirety of, this, of, of the, 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 the lifespan of our species to count that high, yet it's often seen as a nice to do pink and fluffy token gesture to manage mental health and well-being. Now, at what point are we going to stop putting young people into the ground? At what point are we going to keep, well, stop failing, should I say, some of the most vulnerable members of our society? And rather than treating them with medication, which actually is only making things worse, we've obviously been pretty aware of the opioid crisis, particularly in the US, mm -hmm. where you, you know it's a huge killer. And also we now know the data and the evidence clearly shows that depression isn't caused by low serotonin. There was a meta-analysis published a few months ago that the medication we're giving people that are depressed isn't actually helping because depression isn't caused by low serotonin, yet we are giving them SSRIs. So until we actually ensure that all lives have equal value, not lives that are lost to war or COVID or anything else, every life that is lost or damaged should have equal value. Sadly, mental health lives don't. And particularly in the modern workplace, the big challenge we face is the impact that it has on performance, productivity, safety, particularly mm -hmm. into the audience that we're talking about. Yeah. There is a direct correlation between health and safety, workplace injuries, accidents and sadly fatalities and people's mental and emotional state. So we have both a, a duty of care, legal and a moral obligation to our people 
to ensure we are creating safe and healthy working environments. That doesn't just include physical safety risk, includes psychological safety risk. So how can employers do that? How, you know, there has been a lot of talk about psychological safety in the last couple of years, uh, you know, as people are coming back to work, you know, from, you know, after the sort of COVID break and, you know, maybe they're working from home, now they're coming back to the office or the work site, you know, how can employers, you know, do a better job of recognizing, you know, when there's a problem? Well, firstly, recognizing when there's a problem, that's a great question. Firstly, you need to recognize what normal behavior is. <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> particularly given what's happened over the last couple of years, we don't know our people. Most people are playing a video game for eight hours that they get paid for. It's not real. One of the big challenges here is social cohesion, connection, the water cooler, coffee machine moments, the actual relationships, the workplace relationships have been, you know, essentially decimated down to technical, functional, operational conversations. We are literally straight down to business. We do the thing and then we move on. And, you know, forgive me for being blunt, Jake. If I was in your studio right now, I would have arrived. We would have had a cup of tea and coffee. We would have probably got to know each other for a few minutes. Yeah. Whereas the world we live in right now is literally, we're online, two minutes later, we started recording. And that's very different. I've done a lot of television and radio work. And normally you actually get a bit of time to get to know the people that you're going to be presenting or, or being interviewed by or interviewing. That is not the world we live in anymore. Yeah. The human dynamic has been lost. And there is a cost to that. Number one, we hear about the great resignation. That's a term you may have come across where people have no connection to the people or the culture of their organization. So it's easy to leave because you have no loyalty. Right. That's, this is the first time it's happened in any kind of economic downturn. Usually people double down and hold on to their jobs for dear life whilst they navigate the challenges of that economic challenge. That's not happening this time. People are leaving. And, you know, not just, you know, in one or two countries globally, yeah. you've recognized this phenomenon, which is known as the Great Resignation. Also, when you are just there to do a job and you are literally just performing a function, we feel alone, isolated. That has an impact on our mental and emotional state, which then means that we are less likely to follow procedures, protocols. We're more likely to make mistakes. The quality of our work can diminish. And sadly, that obviously leads to some of the risks that we've already talked about with accidents, injuries, and sadly, even fatalities. So the first thing we need to do is start to, number one, remove the guilt, shame, and stigma associated with conversations around mental and emotional well-being. Creating dialogues and safe spaces, making it okay to not be okay. Ensuring people have a sense of belonging to their workplace. There's something to add here. There is a direct correlation between the degradation of community over the last 60 and 70 years, particularly in weird countries, and the increase in mental health issues and suicidality. Jamie, I ask you a question. Have you come across blue zones or countries in the world where people typically tend to live to extended years of age, you know, 80, 90, 100 years of age plus? Have you, have you heard of the, the research around blue zones? Uh, just very briefly, but... Yeah, there's a, there's a few really fascinating documentaries on, on National Geographic and Discovery Channel about this. And these are not the kind of places you would expect people to live to 100 years of age. These are essentially, you know, communities that are still functioning very traditionally, like the South American jungle, mm -hmm. northern Japan, Papua New Guinea, the Himalayas, places where they don't have hospitals and ambulances and shopping malls and supermarkets and Amazon Prime. <laughs> They don't have the internet and mobile phones and 4G or 5G. 
So how is it they're living happier, healthier, longer lives than we do? There are a variety of different factors. I'm not just going to pinpoint it to one. But for me, one of the key ones that came out of that research is they have a sense of community. Mm. They function as a, a society. Everybody plays a role. People look out for each other. Many of us in, in the weird or Western societies that I've described live a very individualistic existence. We live for ourselves and we're encouraged to do so. Now, as much as you might think that is a good thing that you don't need to rely on other people, as human beings, we're social creatures and we need that. We need community. We need social cohesion. Now, particularly in the modern workplace, people travel and move to different parts of the country, different parts of the world. They may not have their... Their, their kind of local community, their friends, their family, the people they grew up with around them. But the one community everyone that has a job should be a part of is their workplace community. Now, that sadly, you know, received one of the final nails in the coffin during the COVID times. Yeah. Because, you know, many people were sent home to work or weren't able to turn up work. But even though now in most parts of the world, COVID is technically over and has been for a while, people aren't rushing back to work. In some, some instances, Companies are not even reopening their workplace fully. They've reduced real estate. So people are expected to now work virtually. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. I disagree. I think this is dangerous. I think that, that we're going to start to see the longer term impacts of this over time, particularly with younger generations. It's fine if you're a little bit older and later on in your career where you've had the time to have that kind of social engagement, being around an environment where you learn by osmosis from the people around you, listening in on conversations, observing what's happening around you, because that is quite literally how human beings learn. Even little babies learn to walk and talk by observing the adults around them. Right. And the people that enter the workplace are learning so much just by absorbing the information that's available to them in that setting. You've got someone at an early stage of their career now expected to work from home either fully or partially. How much of their growth and development is being stunted? How much of their ability to be able to uh, you, you know, learn to communicate, navigate, build you, you know, well-formed relationships and work in, in a workplace setting is being hindered or maybe even totally disabled because they're not being given those opportunities? So I'm not here to say, you know, force everyone back to work but equally i'm not saying go the other end of the spectrum which is all virtual work and we need to find that balance where people do have some time at least where they'll be able to work in social settings where they are around their colleagues and you, you know part of this is also giving us the opportunity to recognize where people are how do you get to know your people when all you get to see is what they're willing to show you correct back-to-back -back zoom teams or skype calls doesn't give you the full picture 60% of people on a, on a video conference call are not dressed from the waist down. That is not a true statistic. I totally just made that up. But you get what I'm saying. You wouldn't know even if they were, right? Yeah. I could be sat in my underpants. You wouldn't know because all you see is what I, how I'm dressed from the waist up. Yeah. Now, the point I'm making, we don't get the full picture. If you don't have the full picture, you don't know where your people are. How will you know when they're compromised? How will you know where they're displaying signs of symptoms that they may be overwhelmed, they may be facing burnout, they may be having mental health issues or mental illness. And this is really the first step. And also then creating a safe, a, a, a safe space in the working environment where people can open up and ask for help without that being seen as a sign of weakness or a vulnerability. And this is really one of the things that I'm, I'm encouraging you to do, uh, to, for, for everyone listening to, to, to do, is how do we start to form better bonds and connections and relationships with the people that we work with beyond the technical, functional, operational ones, actually taking the time to get to know your people. 
Now, our theme for Stress Awareness Month this year, which was April, was about belonging and a sense of community. And that really is one of the things that I encourage everyone listening to foster, is how do we start to foster that sense of belonging and community, which doesn't just help with mental health, it helps with many of the societal issues that we're facing today with you know, xenophobia, we've had issues around race relations, LGBTQ, or a whole variety of things. And you know, in any well-functioning society, everybody is able to belong. So how, uh, you know, how would you recommend that employers kind of encourage the, you know, that sense of community? Obviously, like you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of companies that people are working remotely or their, or their, you know, their offices are no longer, you know, technical offices, but, you know, maybe a co-working situation where you go, you know, you can plug in a computer, but you don't have a desk anymore. So, you know, how do we kind of get people uh, especially people in different locations uh, to sort of, you know, be part of that community? The, the, I, I guess the simple answer is engagement. What are we doing to keep our people engaged? Now, engagement in and of itself is, 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 is easy to offer as a throwaway term, but I need to add some, some, some narrative to that. We're not talking about engagement. I'm talking about three-level engagement, intellectual, emotional, and social. Intellectual, people need to understand what we're doing, what our vision is, how we see ourselves building that culture of well-being as a collective. You don't do well-being two people or four people. It's a collective journey. Everybody needs to be on board as part of that. Yeah. You know, many things are, are aligned to the business plan, sales, marketing, health, safety, HR policies, procedures, often are tied to the business plan. What I find fascinating that most companies I work with, I would say 99.9% .9 of the companies we work for regardless of what they do, what they manufacture, what service they deliver, require people to be able to fulfill that service, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it comes to people, culture, and well-being, even though you cannot fulfill your business or organization's objectives without your people, the people, culture, and well-being piece is often seen as a nice to do, a pink or fluffy, or reduced to an initiative. Yeah. Oh, we'll do training, we'll do some workshops, we'll do a seminar, we'll do a, a well-being day, we'll offer a headspace at work or some fruit baskets. So hold on, this doesn't make sense. You take more care and attention to manage and maintain your machinery or your fleet or your technology than your human capital. That just for me is madness, absolute madness. People, culture and well-being strategy should, well, must, I, 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 I changed my, my, my statement, <laughs> must be attached to the business plan. It's a strategic proposition that, that should be held in terms of responsibility by senior leadership, by Exco, by the board, maybe executed by health and safety, HR, learning and development, employee benefits, whoever else, but who owns this? And often it's reduced to a bunch of initiatives, which is essentially like the pieces of the jigsaw. You can have all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but if you don't know what the picture on the front of the box is, how do you, have, you know you have all the right pieces and that you're assembling them correctly unless you have the vision on the front of the box? That, Jay, is the strategy, and that is what I encourage everyone to look at. Have a clear strategy. What are our challenges? What are our needs as an organization? What are the, you know, when we look at the heat map and we've done an audit and we've recognized what the challenges are, what action can we take to address those? And also, what does success look like? I encourage people to consider what we would describe as the well-being GPS approach. To get in the car, to program the sat-nav, it needs two pieces of information. It needs to know where you are right now and where you want to get to. And only then can it calculate the route map. And that's the one thing that I'm going to encourage everyone to consider. Where are you? 
not last year, 2019-2020. Where are you right now in, you know, uh, September 2022? Where do you want to be? Because the world has changed and, uh, you know, our star position has changed dramatically in the last two years. Once we have those two pieces of information, and when I say where do we want to be, I'm not talking about in five or ten years' time. We can't look that far ahead because the world is changing too rapidly. Where do you want to be in six months to a year? Once you've got those two data points, then we can look at what, what can we do in terms of a route map to get ourselves there from a people, culture, well-being perspective. What do we need to reinvigorate and re-energize? What new things do we have to have in place? What do we need to do better with comms? What do we need to do better with technology, the way we communicate, the way we're developing our leaders, how we're managing our health and safety processes, what we're doing in terms of um, HR, um, you know, what resources do we have in place, like staff counseling, employee assistance programs, org health services, et cetera, et cetera. But until we have those kind of th th those two clear data points, it's very difficult to be able to develop an effective and dynamic route map to be able to get you to where you want to be. Uh, you know, you work with a lot of companies, you know, as you as you go about your business. Are you seeing companies start to take this advice and, and you know, work towards this or is it still in the early stages of that? Well, yeah. Uh, I'm chuckling not because it's funny, but it's because there is no other way to manage this than, than to laugh because otherwise I'm going to cry. <laughs> and it's, it's because, you know, it's, it took us many years to get to the point where we'd managed to navigate this conversation into the boardroom, where it was seen as something that was a serious part of how you run any business. And then COVID came along and very sadly, it was put on the back burner or completely thrown off the, the, the program because it was all about COVID, which yeah. interestingly, that doesn't make sense because we know when people are mentally emotionally compromised when they're scared and stressed you and i both know that you're more likely to get ill right when you're stressed you're more likely to catch yep. a cold or a flu or whatever that's not an opinion that's not a belief that's a biological fact your immune system is suppressed when you are stressed or, or you're mentally emotionally compromised we've been through one of the most stressful periods in living memory which means that we need to prioritize mental health even more because essentially this is going to feed into the issues that we were facing during the pandemic time. It was a very scary time. And actually, rather than supporting people and managing that, the, the fear and the mental emotional impact, actually, every time you turn on the news, all you were hearing is counts of how many people have got cases and how many people have yeah. died and how bad things are. That's not really empowering us to be able to take positive action. It was just creating more fear, which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So part of this is for us to be able to stop, take stock and look at all of the risks affecting our society proportionally. What I say to employers is you also need to consider all the risks affecting your organization proportionally. Because when it, we've got into this conversation, it's scary how many organizations, there's one we're working with recently, 300 staff. They've had three suicides this year alone. Oh, jeez. They didn't have a single person die from COVID. They've had three suicides in 2022 alone. That that's a bigger risk. Now, when we start to look at all the risk proportion, and I'm not in any way, shape or form here to downplay any other risks like COVID or whatever else. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking us to consider there are many risks affecting our society. Let's not just focus on the ones that seem to have more political leverage. Because why is it that mental health lives don't matter as much? That doesn't make sense to me. Why, why is it that we don't take these issues as seriously as others when often the people that are being impacted by serious mental health issues or suicide often are younger people that have no other underlying health conditions. 
So this is where, you know, if we get better at getting people early, not when the point where their bridge is going to collapse, but when their bridge is bowing and buckling, then we consider what can we do to remove the pressure or reinforce the bridge. And that, as an employer, is our responsibility. Are our people well-resourced to be able to do their jobs? Are they well-supported? Do we have a positive work culture where we're able to pick up these things early enough? Are our line managers equipped to be the eyes and ears of the organization to know when their people are compromised? We're not expecting them to be counselors or therapists, but we are expecting them to know their people well enough to pick up when someone is, is, is struggling and then have support resources or interventions in place to be able to support people that are going through a tough time. And when we start to do that, and as I said, when we make it okay to not be okay, when we get people the support they need long before it becomes a more serious issue, that is when we're gonna to start to make positive change. And also the positive benefit is people who are mentally and emotionally well supported perform better at work because mm -hmm. they can problem solve, think laterally, think creatively, higher brain function works better. You get more done in less time. You feel better about what you're doing and you're less likely to leave a job if you feel valued by the people you work with and you care about the people you work with. Now, that's another key point. It makes absolute business sense. There's a direct correlation between business success and how well valued and supported your people are. And I've, I've got you know, 20 years worth of data to support that statement. So it's interesting that even though that is the case, often mental health and well-being is seen as an afterthought rather than one of the most important things we need to do to maximize success and profitability in challenging economic circumstances. And as part of the problem that traditionally companies have sort of left it to the employee to say, hey, I've got a problem. You know, help Absolutely. me. You know, they haven't. You know, it's, there's no proactivity in terms of noticing that. Hey, you know, so and so hasn't been very talkative lately. So, you know, they're not. You know, they seem to be quieter. Why don't we talk to them? You know, it's more like, oh, well, they didn't say anything, so they must be okay. Here's the thing, and Joe, that's an interesting point because, in my belief, this is just my opinion, that mental health is an individual failing. It's easy to say, oh. Jay's depressed, Neil's anxious, Stacy's got, uh, you know, depression, whatever. And we're labeling the individual as broken. We're making an individual failing. My genuine belief is not a failing on the individual. It's a failing on behalf of our society. Mm -hmm. We're literally failing the most vulnerable members of our society. And it's because we don't have that sense of community. And as I already alluded to, in, in the various regions around the world, the blue zone regions that do have a strong sense of community they are less likely to miss when someone is struggling because they support each other. They rise and fall as a community. If the fisherman is not successful in his fish for the day, then everybody goes hungry. If the, the, the person that thatches the roof isn't able to thatch roofs, then everyone's gonna get wet when it rains. And it's because they need to rely on each other, they do support each other because they have to, because the failing of one person potentially could be the failing of the whole society. That is not how it is for us. We are letting people fail every day and ignoring that largely. Mm. You know, if, if someone hurts their leg playing basketball and they come into the workplace and they've got crutches on and then their legs strapped up, they'll be like, oh, you okay, Pete? You know, what happened to your leg? You okay? Can we do anything? Can we help you to your desk? Do you want something to put your foot up on? If you know that, you know, Joe is depressed or has had a breakdown, he comes back to work, people turn and walk the other way because they don't know what to say. Yeah. So that, that stigma and guilt and shame is 
forget even supporting them. We turn our back and walk the other way because we don't know how to interact with them. And that is where we've got to get better our understanding. This is a societal failing, not a, a, a failing on behalf of the individual. Mahatma Gandhi very clearly said, you judge a society by how it treats its most vulnerable members. For far too long, we have been significantly failing the most vulnerable members of our society. And until we start to change that narrative, things are not going to get better. Um, so how important is it for workers to build up personal resilience? I think there's a twofold answer to that question. Yes, you, you know, we need to take responsibility of our resilience and build our own personal resilience, but also leaders whether this is business leaders, political leaders, you know, societal leaders, we need to also ensure that we're starting to build societal resilience. Mm. Because sadly, that hasn't really happened in the way that we need it to happen. Um, th th there's a connection here because, you, you know, we have a campaign that's about to start literally in a couple of days, which will be running through Suicide Awareness Month, uh, World Mental Health Day, Stress Awareness Week, which is November. For the next three months of September, October, November 2022, we'll be running a campaign which is known as hashtag choose hope. Mm -hmm. We live in a world where every single day you're reminded of how bad things are. Wars and terror and economic disasters, natural disasters, you know, illness, pandemics, incompetent leaders. I, I could go on <laughs> and constantly being reminded of how bad things are. And what tends to happen after a while, and, and, and this is not just in, the work, in, in, in a, a kind of a societal level, it's also in our workplaces, our economic challenges, cutbacks, you, you know, you, redeploying, retrenching staff, you know, redundancies, etc. It just goes on and it just feels like we're, we're going from one bad story to another. Every time you turn on the, the news, pick up a newspaper or a magazine, go on social media, you're constantly being reminded of the challenges and the suffering that is being experienced in the world today. Now, if you start to believe that, that really has an impact on what you believe about the future. And people start to lose hope. We're seeing this wholesale. More and more people are losing hope. They're wondering how we're ever going to get through this. When this, is this ever going to get better? We've been in this for a couple of years now, and it doesn't look like it's getting better anytime soon. And the moment we lose hope, we start to, to give up. Uh, mm -hmm. We stop fighting. Our resilience suffers, our mental health suffers. Hope is the key, Jay. Resilience and hope are tied to each other because resilience refers to our ability to bounce back more quickly after an adverse experience and to learn from those experience, experiences. Resilient people don't ignore or suppress difficult emotions. They process them, they face them, they learn with them, they grow, they take those lessons into the next phase of their life. Hope, to, hope and optimism are totally aligned with resilience. And Hope also allows us to see light at the end of the tunnel or light in the darkness. If you have no hope, there is nothing left to fight for. I think yeah. there was a study, I believe it was 2018, research looks at hope and resilience. It was about 700 teenagers, 9th, 10th, 11th graders in, in, in four high schools in low-income regions around the U.S. And they found that the, the teens were more hopeful, were more resilient. And it found that, you, 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 you know, these, these kids essentially excelled in sport. They did better in their studies. They went on to get better jobs and progress further in their careers. This, and this might sound like a little bit hippie and woo-woo. How is it that these people that had hope suddenly were doing better in their lives? Well, think about why. If you have hope, you're more likely to get your butt off the couch 
and get on the basketball pitch or the football pitch or whatever and get in the gym to train, to keep yourself healthy, to eat well, to push yourself in your studies because you believe that you can achieve something. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel and you're fighting to get to that light. When there is no light, you give up. And you talk about resilience. You know, one of the keys, the secret ingredient to resilience, in my humble opinion, is to have hope that things will get better because that will keep you moving through life. That will encourage you to engage in the positive activities that build a stronger bridge. So what I'm saying to everyone right now, yes, you have a responsibility to build your personal resilience, but I say to, to people in positions of leadership, you have a responsibility to the collective to give them hope, to, to, to ensure that we are encouraging them to, to build their resilience by showing them a chink of light at the end of the tunnel, rather than just completely engulfing people in the darkness of the challenges that we're currently facing. Now, as I said, there is plenty of data to support the fact that when we hear those good, you know, positive stories with a happy ending, it will encourage us to be able to look for the light at the end of our collective tunnels. And this is really why the hashtag Choose Hope campaign has been put together, because we're not necessarily hearing anywhere near enough or any at all stories mm. of hope and of success and light at the end of the tunnel where people have overcome challenges. And this is one of the things I'm going to encourage you all to do for the coming months is to find and share those stories, either your own or stories you've heard. Let's start flooding the mainstream narrative with stories of potential of how we can make things better to put that chink of light at the end of the tunnel, which encourages people to get off their butts and work towards a, a happier ending. And Jay, I'd like to kind of just you know, encapsulate this with offering my personal story. I've already told you. That, you know, my, st my story started with an experience of, of, of a breakdown and sadly the depths of which I, I attempted to end my own life. And in that moment when I failed at that, I had two choices, either to try again or to see if I could find some light to be able to aim towards to get myself through this moment. Uh, I had quite a literal mind and in, in that moment I just, you know, I, I found myself in a very deep dark valley in my life. And all I could think about is how do I get myself back on top of the world again? It's a very long story for another day. I'm sure this is a podcast in and of itself. But it was in 2003 I decided that, you know, that's exactly what I needed to do. I think I needed to go to the highest place I could think of. And the highest place I could think of was Mount Everest. And that's exactly what I did. I went out to the Himalayas to attempt to climb Mount Everest. And it was William Blake that said, when men and mountains meet, strange things happen that don't happen when you're jostling in the street. I guess that's where I had a bit of a spiritual epiphany, where I had a moment of realization, having a conversation with the mountain, like I'm having a conversation with you. Um, and, you know, the locals call her Sagarmata, which literally means mother of the earth. Mm -hmm. Everest is such a nonsense name. George Everest didn't find her 150 years ago. She's been there for billions of years. And the locals have a much more fitting name for her. And it was probably low oxygen. It was, you know, maybe exhaustion, whatever it was that led my brain to have this internal dialogue. Or maybe it really was a dialogue with the spirit of man. Who knows? But essentially, it was very much stop feeling sorry for yourself and crying about your your sorrow and your trauma you just had the most beautiful gift what are you going to do with it in that moment i found hope i found belief that i could do something to make the world a better place and in turn help myself to navigate this moment that is where the the the, the stress management society was conceived since then jay we've helped hundreds of millions of people around the world with all the programs we run the campaigns we've been involved with with the national and corporate programs we've been running that would never have happened if I'd lost hope. 
if I wasn't able to navigate myself through that darkness to find the light at the end of the tunnel. What I'm here to share with everyone listening today, no matter how things, how bad things get, you have to really remember the universal law of impermanence. The universal law of impermanence states everything, everything in this universe, even the damn universe itself is not permanent. Everything will end. The universe will end, the solar system, this planet, you and I will all end eventually and something else will follow. You could be having the most challenging, stressful, traumatic moment of your life. It will end and a better one will follow. Equally, you could be having the most ecstatic, orgasmic moment of your life and suddenly that too will end. <laughs> when we, we try to make a permanent things that are transient. And when we can get used to being in that flow and not becoming attached to things that are not permanent is when we, we start to understand the importance of resilience, of being able to, to, to surf the waves of life. And that is why resilience is so important, why it is probably the most important skill that we need to be teaching the youth of today, because that is the only way they're going to be able to navigate these challenging and uncertain times that we find ourselves in. Well, Neil, I think I've got hope that we can do something now. So thank you for that. And thank you for talking to me. This has really been great. You're most welcome. If anyone wants to find out more about uh, our campaign, you can just look up hashtag choose hope or check out our website, which is www.stress.org.uk. So S-T-R-E-S-S.org.uk. And you'll find loads of free resources on how we can find hope to navigate these challenging times. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. That wraps up episode 125 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.